by May 1738, Nader, the newly minted Shah of Iran, was once again on the move, at the head of 25,000 Persian cavalry. His loud and resonating voice booming out commands to his horsemen as they began their long ride northeast, leaving the city of Kandahar behind. The city that only months prior had been in the hands of what had been left of the Hotak dynasty, and that now, like the city, lay in ruins. Reduced to rubble by Nader's vast arsenal of artillery in the aftermath of an 11-month-long siege, a definitive symbol of Nader's wrath, vengeance delivered in response to the Hotak's earlier occupation of Iran from 1722 to 1729, and with this conquest completed, marking all of Iran's lost domains, his domains now fully recovered. Yet another victory gained by this most brilliant of military tacticians, who from his mount took a moment to look upon the ruined city that was getting smaller and smaller in the distance, fading from view, while almost reflexively opening and closing his hands to stretch and relieve them from the slight pain that still radiated from there. Since the closing months of his recent conquest had coincided with another, more personal struggle for the 50-year-old Nader, whose stark black beard was now streaked with grey, but remained an imposing figure as ever. Respected and feared by all those around him, who instinctively averted their eyes from Nader's penetrating glare that had turned from the horizon to look upon the disciplined army that followed in formation before looking down to examine his calloused hands holding the reins of the mount beneath him to confirm that the swelling was down since he had only recently recovered from the strange affliction that had left him in a dreadfully painful state and that apparent to his closest officers and advisors though no one dared to mention it in his presence had triggered a noticeable change to his very character, something deeper and darker to the Shah's already authoritative and harsh personality. Though to their immense relief, that brief spell over for now, and everything pretty much back to normal, as they embarked on this latest endeavor, chasing down the Afghan Gelzai warriors, those of the Hotaks that had fled Kandahar, evading Nader's retribution, with Nader leading his force northeast in pursuit, through the main corridor in between the Hindu Kush mountains to the north and the White Mountain Range to the south, a route that the ever-ambitious Nader had boldly intended, despite fully cognizant to the fact that their travels would soon be bringing them, unannounced, into the domains of the Mughal Empire where, as the Mughal Emperor Muhammad Shah would later come to realize, despite Nader's subsequent assurances of no ill intent, that this infringement was no mop-up operation, but rather the initial Persian thrust of a much broader and ruinous foreign invasion. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, 
Mark Pimenta. Part 6 of this series following the lifetime, events, and exploits of Nader Shah. At its foundation, this being the incredible story of one, given his meager starting point and structure of the world around him, who was certainly among the unlikeliest of candidates to ever make a significant mark in world history, much less become the monarch of a vast Persian empire. But owing to his burning personal ambition, exceptional military talents, political maneuvering and undeniable determination, this enabled Nader to persevere and break through the limits that someone of his ancestry would have normally been subjected to. Smashing through each and every obstacle and person that stood in his path to rise to the very top, leading to his coronation as the Shah of Iran in 1736. And as we'll learn about in this episode, from this lofty position, now completely unrestrained in his authority, it was from this point onwards that the new militaristic-minded Shah set out on the warpath once again to not only claw back the last remaining domains that had been lost to Iran's enemies in decades past, but then move into the next phase of his reign, foreign conquest, achieved through yet more dazzling battlefield victories, arriving at the pinnacle of his career, greatly expanding the boundaries of his empire at the expense of the Mughal Empire and the Khanats in Central Asia. But in doing so, with such immense power being held by one person alone, made more complicated by the need to legitimize his claim to kingship, this also drove Nader to disrupt the religious bedrock that formed the basis of his nation's belief system, while at the same time sacrificed the well-being of his people to fuel his non-stop pace of military campaigning. And when you throw into the mix the sole holder of all this power, starting to show hints of declining health and a deteriorating mental status. Although Nader's military achievements in reaching the apex of his career remain no less astounding, well, it becomes hard to ignore the ominous growing shadow, signaling dire and lasting repercussions for those within and around his empire. However, before we get into all of this, just a little housekeeping to get through first. As I have the great pleasure of welcoming Nicole Rodemoyer as the newest inductee into the ranks of the Warlords of History Immortals. Which brings me to the next point, because as you may know, ever since I started the podcast, one of the aims beyond bringing you the stories of these military titans from history has been to extract some wider good from all of their acts. As we well know by now, some of which were noble pursuits, with others downright destructive. And thanks to the Warlords of History Immortals, the patrons of the show via the Warlords of History Patreon page, as promised, 10% of the monthly contributions raised in 2022 has been dedicated to what I believe to be an exceptional charitable cause, in the form of livestock, given to people in impoverished nations who are taught how to care for the animals 
thus giving them things like eggs and milk, acting as a vital source of food and potential income to help get these people out of poverty. Again, my deepest thanks, immortals, for supporting the show and helping to make this happen. And lastly, one final special thank you and mention going out to Hamid for all your insights and helping to generate some of the research for this episode from primary sources that I wouldn't have otherwise had access to. I wish for you nothing less than the best of health and success in all your future endeavors. All right, now, quick reminder that this episode marks the sixth part of the series following the lifetime and exploits of Nader Shah. So, if you haven't had the chance to get through parts 1 through 5 as of yet, you may want to start there, so that you have all the context necessary for better understanding the events, people, and themes that we'll be covering off in this installment of the storyline. But, as usual, let's kick things off with a brief summary of what we encountered in the last episode to have everything fresh in our minds. With Nader in late 1732, closer to the Iranian throne as ever, in being named regent and chief servant of the Iranian empire, and engaging in some rather shrewd and skillful diplomacy with the Russian imperial empire, convincing them to hand back the Persian domains in north and northwestern Iran, before setting out on campaign against the Ottoman empire with the ultimate goal of reclaiming Iran's lost territories in the Caucasus, the lands roughly coinciding with much of the modern countries of Azerbaijan and Armenia. But taking them by surprise, in striking at their possessions in the Mesopotamian basin and besieging the city of Baghdad, which turned into a long-winded affair, allowing the Ottomans to assemble a potent army under their most accomplished general of the time, Topol Osman Pasha, who leveled a crushing defeat upon Nader at the Battle of Samara in July 1733, resulting in 33,000 Persian troops lost, approximately one-third of Nader's army, forcing Nader to retreat back into Iran. But even worse for this ambitious warrior, this blow severely damaging his stature and calling into question his claim of being favored by God to lead, pushing Nader to show a tremendous force of will and dogged determination to quickly rearm, reprovision, and rebuild his army, presiding over a fantastical recovery in a mere two months' time, though notably by also making heavy demands on the Persian aristocracy to cover the costs of doing so, resulting in a particularly dangerous rebellion being triggered in southern Iran soon after, calling for Nader's removal and the reinstatement of the deposed Thomas II of the Safavid dynasty back to the Persian throne. But not distracting Nader from his goal of reversing the stain on his military record, returning to the Mesopotamian basin to avenge the loss by winning a scintillating battlefield victory over Topol Osman Pasha and the Ottomans at the Battle of Kirkuk, before promptly marching off to southern Iran to brutally quash the rebellion, clearing his path to resume operations against the Ottomans, this time 
striking at the Caucasus, topped off by neither delivering yet another incredible victory at the Battle of Jagavard in June 1735. Although outnumbered more than 5 to 1, neither leading 15,000 of his troops to amazingly overwhelm a Turkish army of 80,000, thus bringing the Ottoman Empire to its knees, rendering all of the Iranian Caucasus domains returned, and, in the process, raising Nader's authority to unassailable heights to finally assume the throne as the Shah of Iran in March 1736. Bringing us to where we last left everything off, in the fertile Mogan Plain that today straddles the border between northwestern Iran and southern Azerbaijan, the site of the Kurultai wherein Nader was crowned as Shah. Standing in a position of absolute authority and influence, and using this position to lay down several non-negotiable conditions to be accepted by the 20,000 Kurultai attendees of his newly won empire, Nader's subjects. These including the cream of the Persian nobility, provincial governors, and leading Shia Islam religious authorities, requiring the attendees to swear oaths and abide by the following three conditions. 1. That no one was to abandon Nader and support any of the Safavid dynasty in his place. 2. That their obedience to Nader would henceforth be extended to that of his sons, who were now royal princes of the realm and the future rightful claimants to the throne. And lastly, three, that his subjects would be obliged to adopt what was in essence a new state religion, called Jafari Islam, in order to bring his nation more in line with its Sunni Islam neighbors. The Jafari school, named for Jafar al-Sadiq, who was the sixth Imam, according to the Twelver Shia belief system, but with Jafar al-Sadiq also residing as an important figure within Sunni doctrine as well. On the surface, neither implementing this to heal the rupture and extinguish the sources of hostility between the two branches of Islam, that had long caused much strife between these sets of believers, such as by eliminating the Shi'i practice of ritually cursing the first three Sunni caliphs, believing them to not be valid successors of the Prophet Muhammad. But of course, with Nader clearly having an ulterior motive in instituting this massive religious changeover, and in fact, with all of the three conditions to him assuming the crown being implemented in order to entrench his and that of his dynasty as the legitimate holders of power in the empire. You see, as mentioned way back in the first episode of the series, since 12 Shia Islam arose from and was based on Ali being the first Imam, the legitimate successor to the Prophet Muhammad, to which the Safavid dynasty claimed an unbroken lineage, by removing this as the basis of the Iranian Empire state religion, Nader was attempting to put the final nail in the coffin as to the Safavid's divine right to rule. However, in making such a ground-shaking change, this immediately caused a massive rupture within his own empire, since Twelver Shiism 
over the past two centuries had become so strongly rooted into the fabric of society. Something Nather would have most certainly been aware of, but perhaps believing that, just like he had used his overwhelming military strength to force his way to the throne, he could also use brute strength along with his current place of unassailable authority to eventually force Jafari Islam to become the dominant religious persuasion of his realm, as evidenced by the public strangling of the Shia mullah that had dared to question Nadir's ascension to the Iranian throne in the lead-up to his coronation that we touched upon in the last episode. And as you can probably gather by now, all of this making for a decidedly contentious and oppositional relationship between Nadir and the Shia clergy, who, though disgruntled and instantaneously weakened in importance, since the doctrines they delivered no longer reigned supreme, they were pretty much powerless to do anything about it, aside from seethe in anger, while later forced to swallow down more insults, with Nadir confiscating large proportions of their lands and revenues creating a great deal of resentment that would eventually trickle down to the populace, producing what I suspect was something akin to a smoldering fire that would bring about grave consequences for Nather's reign into the future. The Shia clergy, from that point, proceeding to go about their regular business of providing religious guidance to the populace and tribes as usual but while also quietly sowing seeds of discontent regarding the shift and challenge to their fundamental beliefs, adding to the discontent that was already arising from the heavy taxation that Nader was heaving onto his people, and that would combine to, eventually, give way to active rebellions popping up throughout the empire. All of this materializing because the Shia mullahs were now locked in a religious power struggle with Nader, who, at the same time, was making top-down efforts to have Jafari Islam raised and positioned alongside the four primary Sunni schools in terms of importance. Interestingly, attempting to achieve this through subsequent negotiations with the Ottomans. Why did Nader need Ottoman support for this? Well, largely because the Ottoman Empire was widely regarded to be the leading nation of the Islamic world, in control of all the holiest sites and cities according to both Sunni and Shia Muslims alike, including Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem, and Damascus. Meaning that, the Ottoman acceptance of Nader's proposal would have done much to reinforce his goal of entrenching Jafari Islam as a major force spurring its acceptance and wider adoption amongst his subjects. However, although Nader was in a position of undeniable strength, having just defeated the Ottomans, winning back all of the Iranian Caucasus domains, even though the Turks did acknowledge Nader as the new king of Iran, what they didn't do was approve Nader's proposal regarding Jafari Islam nor dismiss his proposal outright, taking a cautious, non-committal stance instead, indulging Nader by stating that such a monumental change required extensive deliberations among the top brass of the Ottoman Sunni clergy, 
so more like a let's wait and see what happens type of response. Now, this is certainly an answer that couldn't have sat well with Nather, but he didn't choose to press the matter through military force, as he may have been optimistic that his recent successes against the Ottomans, the obvious fear that they had of him, would eventually give way to ratification anyway. And if it didn't, well then, Nather could always return and make them agree. Plus, Nather had other pressing concerns to busy himself with, and since the western and northwestern reaches of his empire were now secure, this freed the Shah to begin planning for the completion of the full reconquest of Iran's domains, aiming at Kandahar and the final stroke of revenge to be served upon the Afghan Hotaks that had caused so much turmoil to his nation throughout the 1720s. But first, before leaving the Northwest, taking care of some administrative housekeeping, Nather announcing that the city of Mashhad in Khorasan would henceforth become the capital of his Afsharid Iranian Empire, not just for personal reasons, since this was his homeland where he was most loved, but mainly for political reasons, because Isfahan was strongly associated with the Safavids, and moreover, this being in tune with Mashhad being a central location to his future expansionistic plans. The next thing he did was have his predecessor, the now deposed child king Abbas III, and any others of the Safavid line that he could get his hands on, rounded up and sent off to the city of Mashhad, to be imprisoned there alongside Tamasp, under the watchful eye of Nader's eldest son, Reza Koli Mirza now around 17 years old, who Nader put in charge of the northeastern portion of his empire, and was apparently proving himself to become an accomplished warrior and commander in his own right. Nader also placing other supporters loyal to him into prominent positions and governorships throughout his realms, including leaving the northwest under the command of his younger brother Ibrahim. And lastly, commissioning the development of an Iranian navy under an admiral by the name of Latif Khan, creating this fleet by forcibly requiring the English and Dutch East India companies that were actively trading in the Persian Gulf to sell several vessels to him, basing the fleet at the port city of Boucher in southwestern Iran tasking Latif Khan with the conquering objectives of dominating the Persian Gulf including the capture of the island of Bahrain, today the country known as the Kingdom of Bahrain, situated between Qatar and the northeastern coast of Saudi Arabia. And with all of this done, in the summer of 1736, the new Shah proceeding to lead his over 100,000 strong army south, towards the former Iranian capital of Isfahan, to prepare for the assault of Kandahar. However, with Nader soon required to make an impromptu pause along his path, in August 1736, to deal with an insurrection among his people, the Bakhtiari, a fierce, nomadic, mountain-residing tribe that was now in open revolt. From their strongholds in the middle of the Zagros Mountains, about 200 kilometers west of Isfahan, a rebellion sparked by Ali Murad, a prominent figure among the Bakhtiari 
who had earlier been a minor officer within Nather's army, but had since deserted, in part due to having become disaffected with Nather's leadership and the aforementioned sweeping changes that he was ramming down their throats. In particular, the manner in which the Safavids had been cast aside, believing that in taking the crown, Nather had crossed the line as an illegitimate usurper. This in addition to the heavy taxation they were being subjected to. Because, as alluded to earlier, with the Iranian Empire's economy in relative shambles, Nather was running out of funds and diverting whatever was coming in to the maintenance and expansion of his army. The financial burden to sustain his prodigious need for more money thus falling upon his people, akin to trying to drain blood out of a stone, something we'll see a lot more of throughout his reign. With the Bakhtiari tipped over the edge into revolt by the religious changeover, since they were noted as fervently devout to their traditional Shia faith. Factors which enabled Ali Murad to put together a sizable force of an estimated 10 to 15,000 Bakhtiari warriors which of course drove Nather to attack. Uncompromising in his goals and wanting to show absolutely no weakness when it came to the enforcement of his commands, assaulting their mountainous homeland in a coordinated attack from several directions at once. And although the Bakhtiari put up an inspired resistance over the next two months, since they largely didn't use firearms, they were unable to match the firepower of Nather's fearsome army. That crushed the rebellion ruthlessly, finalized by the capture and brutal execution of Ali Murad, that, at the Shah's order, was blinded before having his hands, feet, ears, and nose cut off, dying in misery two days later. Though of note is that Nather, as was customary, proceeded to press several thousand of his defeated adversaries into his military, before returning to Isfahan in October 1736, where the new king immediately began making elaborate preparations for what would end up as a comprehensively long campaign, since, by this point, I'm convinced that Nader was already looking beyond Kandahar, although certainly his next stop, anticipating the steps he would take thereafter, believing that the Mughal Empire held the solution for what he was lacking, riches that would allow him to continue expanding his military might without restraint. Although, for the time being, the lack of funds in the state coffer did little to hold him back in this endeavor, as Nader proceeded to expand his standing army to around 150,000 along with arming his soldiers with the best equipment and weapons he could get his hands on. Notably, beyond that of his infantry, having muskets increasingly issued out to his cavalry. By 1736, muskets being one of the standard weapons of their personal arms, thereby further enhancing the flexibility and utility of all his troops. But possibly raising the question for you, if he didn't have the state funds to do this, then how? As referenced earlier, by largely placing the financial burden on the subjects of his empire, while also being dismissive or indifferent 
to the ruin that he was inflicting upon his own people, giving us more hints as to the lasting, troublesome consequences that his reign would have on his empire, damaging his future legacy. Best related to us by Lawrence Lockhart in his book Nader Shah, when he writes that at this time, that the Shah's agents were busy in the Hormozagan province, requisitioning provisions for the troops, carrying out their duties so rigorously that the inhabitants were reduced to the utmost misery. In the province of Kirman, Nader so denuded the people of supplies that there was a famine there for seven or eight years afterwards. What was done at these places was no doubt carried out with equal ruthlessness elsewhere. Enabling Nader in late November 1736 to lead his enormous force out from the gates of Isfahan, 1600 kilometers to the east, aiming towards the city of Kandahar in modern southern Afghanistan. The last remaining vestige of the Hotak dynasty's waning power that was still in the hands of Hussein Hotak, the leader of the Afghan Gelzai tribe, whose relatives had, for nearly a decade from 1722 to 1729, controlled huge swaths of the Iranian Empire, before being ousted by Nader as covered back in Part 3 of the series. The memory of the brutal Afghan occupation remaining as a sore point among the Persians, and one that Nader was now determined to deliver some long-overdue retribution in keeping with his task of protecting his empire from its enemies and clawing back all of its lost domains, Kandahar being the last remaining piece to this puzzle. And while Hussein Hotak did make efforts to harass the Iranian army as they advanced to the city in a series of nasty and bitterly fought encounters, the Hotaks again and again found themselves on the losing end of these skirmishes steadily losing their footing and forts, unable to hold back the Persian advance that, in the process, had whittled down Hussein Hotak's army from 30,000 to about 10,000, and that had done little to delay the inevitable siege of Kandahar that commenced in April 1737. As noted, leaving Hussein Hotak with a much reduced force, but one that would have still been considered large for a defensive garrison, and that were well provisioned in the city. Also, with artillery placed all along its walls and natural fortifications to help ward off the attackers, forcing Nather to once again opt for a long-winded siege, attempting to blockade and starve the city into submission, building a ring of forts around Kandahar, and between these forts, towers that were placed at intervals of about 100 meters, along with the founding of a new city that would become known as Nadarabad, situated about 5 kilometers away, along the bank of the Argandab River, complete with walls, a citadel, bazaars, mosques, baths, coffee and rest houses. Nader's base of operations also serving as a site to keep his troops distracted and happy when not at the front lines of the siege. Now, Nather did indeed have a sizable amount of artillery with him. However, the range of the Iranian pieces must have been about the same as their Afghan counterparts, 
but with the Hotax holding a distinctive edge since their cannons were protected behind the fortifications of the city. Meaning that, if neither were to command his brought closer into range, they would have been sitting ducks out in the open, leading to their destruction. And while neither did manage to make some progress, including taking possession of the ridge overlooking the city, allowing his mortars to continually lob destructive fire into the city. The siege nonetheless dragged on for some time, in fact 11 months before Nather decided to storm the city in March 1738. Interestingly, and in what ended up as another brilliant tactical decision, by calling upon one of the most recent additions pressed into his army, the Bakhtiari, the mountain-faring tribesmen that they were, well known for their mountaineering and climbing skills, to lead the assault. On March 24, 1738, with both the Persians and Afghans falling into their daily routines, settling down for another long day of more of the same. Until, after the midday prayers, when Nader assembled 80,000 of his troops, divided into four groups, that were sent to various points around the city, complete with soldiers carrying scaling ladders at the ready. A big show that was in fact a ruse, an elaborate feint concocted by Nather, drawing the defenders' attention away from a lightly defended tower. That, as planned, became the focal point of 4,000 Bakhtiari warriors, who suddenly rushed forward in one wave, to climb the tower and its nearby walls, leading to vicious hand-to-hand -to -hand combat with the defenders. With the Bakhtiari capturing that tower and then another, followed by one of the gates to the city, enabling Nader to pour thousands more of his troops into Kandahar, that the Afghan defenders were unable to hold back, leading to their surrender and the imprisonment of Hussein Hotak thus quashing the relevance of the Hotak dynasty for good, with neither than taking the additional step of rendering absolute vengeance by systematically raising Kandahar to the ground, using his artillery to reduce the city to rubble, leaving it a smoking ruin. Though in the aftermath, as usual, convincing thousands of the Afghan Gelzai horsemen to join in his army, giving Nather another boost of what was considered to be the finest shock cavalry in Persia, alongside their Afghan Abdali countrymen that already formed a part of Nather's forces. Now, as a slight backtrack to the chronology, while Nather was stationed at Natharbad and Kandahar, a couple of rather interesting events occurred, seemingly minor in comparison to the siege at hand but that would have huge ramifications into the future. First, in March 1737, Nader receiving word from his admiral, Latif Khan, that he had succeeded in conquering Bahrain, also gaining footholds in other parts of the northern Arabian Peninsula coastline, in what today would be Qatar and the United Arab Emirates, while also learning that directly east of these new domains, where the Sultanate of Oman was situated, under the control of the Yarubid dynasty, that this country was aflame in civil war, with several factions vying for power, presenting an attractive opportunity for Nader to enter into the messy conflict. 
with the ultimate goal of conquering the region, adding to his empire and gaining control of all of the coastlines around the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman. But with Latif Khan not possessing enough muscle to take on this more ambitious endeavor, prompting Nader to call upon a man by the name of Mohammad Taki Khan, the provincial governor of Fars in southwestern Iran, commanding him to raise an army and join with Latif to pursue the campaign in Oman. The second event of interest being reports coming from his eldest son, Reza Koli, now in charge of Khorasan and the northeastern edge of the empire, that had begun sparring and skirmishing against warlords and raiders operating from within the nearby Khanats of Bukhara and Kiva, and who, in the likeness of his father, as a skilled commander and ambitious warrior, but without Nader's consent, took it upon himself to advance against these foes, striking deep into their lands, almost igniting a full-blown war with the leaders of these nations, prompting Nader to command his son to stand down since he was unwilling to risk a broader war there, in that theater, until he was present, with sufficient forces and able to command things personally. But also, because Nader needed his capable son in Iran, choosing this moment to promote Reza Koli as viceroy, overseeing empire affairs and ruling in his absence, since Nader, following Kandahar's fall, was planning to be abroad for some time on his next campaign. Third, Nader receiving an Ottoman envoy at Naderabad from Sultan Mahmud, one laden with excuses, but that, in short, made clear their official refusal of Nader's request to recognize the Jafadi sect as the fifth pillar of Islam, resulting in Nader responding with venom now demanding that they reconsider, dangling the threat of war if they didn't reverse their position. And finally, the fourth event, on more of a personal note, for the now 50-year-old Shah, as alluded to at the very top end of this episode, was, around this time, probably at some point during the course of the siege at Kandahar, neither coming down with a severe illness the starting of recurrent health issues that would continue to plague Nader until the end of his days. That, even more detrimental for Nader, and indirectly to everyone else around him, his whole empire in fact, increasingly began to coincide with mental health issues for the Shah that would gradually worsen over time. Best related to us by Abdal Karim, one of Nader's contemporaries, a chronicler of his military campaigns, who noted that, before his invasion of India, Nader contracted an intestinal complaint and, apparently, dropsy, which were accompanied by severe melancholia. Dropsy, today known as edema, the swelling of the body, usually to the ankles, legs, arms, and hands, caused by fluid retention in the body's tissues which can be triggered by a variety of ailments such as heart, kidney, or liver disease, and that would have certainly been quite painful to experience, also spurring a bout of depression for Nader, along with leaving a lasting and notably malevolent imprint on Nader's personality. 
regularly put on display over the course of his next endeavor, with frequent occurrences of sudden violent outbursts leveled upon the defeated adversaries and foreign inhabitants that he would come across in his future travels, including having anyone that displeased him or that he even suspected of lying to him during interrogations, thrown to his soldiers, and beaten to death. And although Nather's ailments would from there on in continue to intensify into the future, this early flare-up soon subsided, with Nather managing to recover enough to begin setting off on his next campaign. And now that all of Iran had been recovered, this marking the next phase of Nader Shah's violent reign, focused on the expansion of his empire. In May 1738, riding out from Naderabad, accompanied by his second eldest son, Morteza Mirza, and a quick-moving group of 25,000 cavalry, crossing over into the domains of the Mughal Empire, aiming for the city of Ghazni about 350 kilometers to the northeast, in modern western Afghanistan. And even though we can be fairly certain that Nader was fully intending on conquest, he didn't make any declarations of war, playing at coy instead. After he had crossed into their lands, sending notice to Muhammad Shah, the 13th Mughal Emperor, stating that he had no interest in the lands of the Mughal Empire beyond capturing the elements of the Hotak forces, those of the Afghan Gelzai tribe that had escaped the Persian conquest of Kandahar and its surrounding regions. Since, despite Nader's earlier requests, the Mughals had failed to seal off their western border to the Afghans, Nader's assurances of no ill will, in combination with the lethargic court and leadership of the Mughals, producing a sequence wherein the Mughals, unsure of how to handle the infringement, and wary of Nader's formidable reputation, not wanting to spark war unnecessarily, watched with deep unease as Nader took control of the city of Ghazni in mid-June, before promptly continuing his march 150 kilometers deeper into the Mughal lands to take control of the city of Kabul by the end of that same month. Nader indeed proceeding to mop up the last remnants of his Afghan Gelzai foes, but with his messages of friendliness to Muhammad Shah juxtaposed with the aggressive actions of a conqueror in overtaking Ghazni and Kabul. With the realization slowly dawning upon the Mughals that this was in fact a full-fledged invasion, confirmed beyond the shadow of a doubt in September 1738 as Nader's army continued their advance further inwards to conquer the city of Jalalabad, 150 kilometers east of Kabul, driving the Mughals to finally come out of their lackadaisical haze to offer up a military response, selecting the Khyber Pass to make their stand against the Iranian invasion. The Khyber Pass being the famous mountain passage between modern western Afghanistan and northern Pakistan, a vital trade route linking Central Asia to the Indian subcontinent as a part of the Silk Road that has long been regarded as a strategic military choke point and prize for whoever controlled it. But 
Before we get further into the storyline and the upcoming Battle of Khyber Pass, let's take a bit of time to backtrack historically to understand the status of the Mughal Empire and the events leading to their lackluster response to the invasion. This mighty South Asian empire, founded in 1526 by Babur, a descendant of Tamerlane, that expanded over the next two centuries through a series of talented emperors such as Akbar the Great and Aurangzeb to eventually conquer and rule the lands roughly corresponding with the modern countries of Bangladesh through to and including India, Pakistan, and the western half of Afghanistan. An empire created and sustained by warfare, large, well-equipped armies, and the early incorporation of gunpowder weapons, small arms and artillery playing an important role in its military dominance. Later followed by some rather impressive domestic technological innovations in this area, including early forms of rocketry and heavy cannons. Some pieces reportedly so large that elephants were required to drag them along. Helping the Mughals to reach their territorial and military zenith in the early 1700s under its sixth emperor, Aurangzeb, with a vast population under its umbrella. As referenced in part one of the series, approximately 160 million souls, accounting for 23% of the global population, which also contributed to the Mughals becoming an economic powerhouse, comparatively dwarfing the Iranian Empire in both measures. Underneath all of this prosperity, however, an ever-present and constant bubbling of social class and religious tensions, given the structure of power in the nation, a Sunni Islamic emperor and militaristic ruling class reigning over a largely Hindu and Sikh majority. And whereas earlier emperors, to varying degrees, wisely opted for a tone of religious tolerance, Aurangzeb, who ruled until 1707, despite being a prolific conqueror, was decidedly intolerant to other faiths making a concerted effort to convert his subjects, while also demolishing their temples, which some historians point out as a watershed moment, disrupting the stability of Mughal society. After his death, this coinciding with a period of succession squabbles and civil war, the beginning of a long decline for the Mughals, a poignant example of this being no less than six, short-term emperors that reigned between 1707 to 1719, until Nader's adversary, Muhammad Shah, ascended to the Mughal throne. Clearly, a lack of strong, centralized leadership, made worse by this series of ineffectual rulers that were raised in the lap of luxurious environments and their harems, like that of Muhammad Shah, much more preoccupied with pursuits of pleasure rather than ruling their empire, with actual authority increasingly residing in the hands of regional power brokers and warlords, thereby fracturing the empire, creating internal divisions and factionalism, squabbling for power within its realms, made worse by the royal army falling into decay, neglected, resulting in troop discipline falling by the wayside while also relying on weaponry that was becoming obsolete. 
a notion best encapsulated by Anne-Marie Schimmel in her book, The Empire of the Great Mughals, when she writes that, even foreign visitors who stayed at the Mughal court for a longer time began noticing the wretched and undisciplined state of the army, and that one or another prince was always starting an uprising. Sound familiar? Oh yes. Eerily similar to the decay that took hold of Iran and the decline of the Safavid dynasty in the lead-up to Nader's power grab to arise as Shah. And very likely, given his earlier experiences, an unstable environment that Nader was convinced he could exploit to expand his empire and obtain some much-needed plunder given that his nation was on the edge of bankruptcy. The weak centralized leadership and lack of cohesion among the Mughals, also giving us a good understanding of what had allowed Nader to venture so deep into the Mughal domains before a serious response was finally presented at the Khyber Pass in late November 1738. A mixture of Afghans and soldiers from what is today northern Pakistan. Though sadly, with sources not giving us much detail regarding the type of troops deployed, whether infantry or cavalry. A force not sent by Muhammad Shah, based in the Mughal capital of Delhi, but one quickly assembled by the governor of the city of Peshawar, located about 40 kilometers southeast to the strategic pass, who decided to take matters into his own hands by marching his army into the narrow corridor to block Nader's intended route. The path to which Nader and his second eldest son, Morteza Mirza, were approaching, leading their 22,000 predominantly cavalry-based army from Jalalabad to the northern entrance of the Khyber Pass. Advanced Persian scouting parties bringing reports as to what awaited them, with Nader quickly realizing that the strong defensive position of the Mughal army within the narrow defiles of the corridor was indeed an exceptional one, since this would allow for only a thin column of his troops to advance at one time, along with preventing any hope of the Persians using tactical formations, making flanking maneuvers impossible. Nader, fully aware that a frontal attack would be their undoing, prompting the Iranian monarch to once again reach into his bag of tricks, pulling out yet another piece of battlefield brilliance. Seemingly, marching his entire force of 22,000 cavalry forth to begin making their way into the Khyber Pass. However, during the night prior to their arrival, using the darkness to conceal his true intentions, peeling off 10,000 of his lightest cavalry and personally leading them to traverse a much smaller and much more treacherous passage to the south, known only to local guides. The beginning of an epic 80-kilometer flank march through terribly difficult conditions, but with neither pushing and driving his troops with uncompromising intensity, while his son and his contingent of 12,000 slowly continued making their way through the Khyber Pass closer to the awaiting Mughal army. And despite Nader's group being exhausted from their march, their frenzied pace allowed them to remain undetected, entering the Khyber Pass from its southern entrance, topping off this amazing maneuver 
by charging into the surprised Mughals at their backs and absolutely annihilating them to a man, thereby clearing the path for Nader Shah to resume his invasion, conquering the city of Peshawar three days later. More importantly, however, giving him open access to the Indus Valley and what laid beyond the Mughal capital of Delhi, 900 kilometers to the southeast of Peshawar, where Muhammad Shah, in learning of Nader's breakthrough, gaining possession of the Khyber Pass, the strategic gateway into the heart of his domains, this spurred the emperor to finally and fully awaken to the dire threat facing his nation making frantic pleas for his subjects to gather at Delhi and begin assembling an immense army. While Nader, situated at Peshawar, did the same, remaining there for just over a month, using this time to call upon the rest of his army to join him in preparation of the final push to Delhi, all told approximately 215,000 troops. Though, as a quick side note at this time, also receiving disturbing news coming from the northwestern portion of his empire, that the troublesome Lesgian tribe had reignited their rebellious ways, capturing portions of the Iranian lands in modern Azerbaijan, and killing Nader's brother Ibrahim, who had been left in charge of the region. And while Nader intended to deal with this in due course, he commanded his eldest son, Reza Koli, as viceroy, to do what he could to contain the rebellion and prevent the Lesgians from making any additional gains. Since Nader was not about to let anything get in the way of his, quite literally, golden opportunity to bring the Mughals to their knees and extract their immense wealth that would do much to fuel his future plans and imperialistic agenda, which, as we well know by now, Central to this was Nader's constant emphasis on the improvement and expansion of his army. That, in early January 1739, continued their southwards march from Peshawar, Nader proceeding to launch a short but furious assault on the city of Lahore, conquering the city that same month, and setting the stage for the immense final battle that would take place in late February at a site called Karnal the location that would give this battle its name, 115 kilometers to the north of Delhi, where the Mughal emperor Muhammad Shah was awaiting, with troops still streaming in to build his army, and that would ultimately allow him to amass a tremendously large force of 300,000, including 2,000 war elephants, 3,000 artillery pieces, and 50,000 excellent quality cavalry with the remainder being a patchwork of light cavalry, musketmen infantry, along with sizable contingents of non-firearm-equipped soldiers, bearing weapons like bows and swords. Persian scouts bringing Nader a constant stream of reports as to the positioning and configuration of the Mughal forces, which drove the Iranian Shah to lead his 215,000 troops in field basing themselves in a large valley to the east of the Ali Mardan Canal, where, about five kilometers away on the opposite side of the valley and the western bank of the waterway, was the Mughal encampment, giving Nader the opportunity to personally survey the vast opposing army for himself. 
taking away a couple of key observations that allowed him to crystallize his battle plans. Seeing that, although the Mughal army far outnumbered his own, the Persian troops held the distinct advantage in terms of small arms firepower. And while the Mughals did indeed have musketeer units within their ranks, a large proportion of their infantry was exclusively armed with the muscle-powered weaponry of a bygone era, a notion also relatable to the Mughal artillery. Again, formidable from a number standpoint, but with almost all of their pieces being exceptionally heavy and antiquated, less than ideal for field operations, with poor maneuverability also requiring long reload times, in stark contrast to the quick-moving and rapid-firing Iranian pieces, not to mention his light-cannon camel-bearing Zamboraks. Prompting Nader in the early morning of February 24, 1739, to organize his army into three large divisions on his side of the field. With his son, Morteza Mirza, in charge of the center, his favored general, Thomas Kanjaleir, leading the right wing, and two other of his generals commanding the left, with the Iranian artillery also distributed evenly between these three divisions. And Nader himself, selecting a hand-picked group of 1,000 Kizilbash cavalry, which were to accompany their shah as he traveled from site to site on the battlefield to oversee and coordinate the actions of his entire army. Against the opposing mass of Mughal troops that had been organized into one solid linear block on the western bank of the canal. Soon, followed by Nader striking the first blows of the Battle of Karnal. Remember when I mentioned that the Mughal forces were still streaming in? Well, one of these was a powerful regional governor by the name of Sadat Khan, leading 30,000 troops to the Mughal camp, approaching the valley from the north. And while Sadat Khan managed to reach the camp without issue, his following column of troops and baggage was left vulnerable, which Nather immediately seized upon, sending 6,000 cavalry to assault their rearguard and begin pilfering Sadat's baggage train, driving the Mughal commander into a furious rage, and without consulting the Mughal emperor, mounting his war elephant, and quickly organizing several thousand of his cavalry and musket infantry to salvage his baggage. Crossing the Ali Mardan Canal, and soon encountering the Iranian cavalry, who put up a half-hearted resistance before retreating eastwards, racing across the valley back to the center of the main Iranian army. A feigned retreat, with Sadat Khan playing along, following in pursuit. While further south on the battlefield, Nader had commanded another large group of Iranian cavalry forward to begin harassing the Mughal center. The Iranian cavalry, including mounted Jazayirchi troops, that proceeded to pepper the Mughal line with musket fire, and that succeeded to draw in another prominent Mughal commander, Khan Doran, into the fight, that also began leading them back to the main Iranian army in a feigned retreat to its leftmost division. And as a quick aside, in case that you're finding the battle sequence difficult to follow, I'll be sure to include an infographic on the Warlords of History website so that it'll be easier to make sense of everything. Which at this point, 
was two main Mughal thrusts moving across the field. Sadat Khan leading his troops to the Iranian center and Khan Doran leading his contingent to the Iranian left. Three things becoming readily apparent for us in that, one, the Mughals suffering from a complete lack of coordination in their efforts and battle plans, simply reacting to Nader's harassment tactics, their commanders acting independently of one another. Two, that both Mughal commanders fell victim to feigned retreats, whereupon, nearing the respective Iranian divisions, the Persian artillery, the Zamburaks, and Nader's exceptionally trained musketmen and Jazayirchi, combined to unleash a terrible storm of firepower on the advancing Mughal soldiers, horsemen, and war elephants. And finally three, the Mughal emperor and his military advisors displaying little in the way of a strategic plan or vision for the battle. Aside from sending groups of reinforcements over the next couple of hours to the battlefront, only to get mowed down as well. And as you can probably guess by now, in the end, it wasn't even close. With the quickly mounting and frighteningly high rate of casualties experienced among the Mughal forces, spelling out for Muhammad Shah the futility of continuing to give battle. In this heavily lopsided affair, wherein, although the numbers debated among historians, the Mughals are said to have lost somewhere between 20 to 30,000 in just a few hours, in comparison to Nader's army, that at most saw around 1 to 2,000 casualties. The figurative distance between these opponents being too great in terms of professionalism, discipline, strategic leadership, and the overall caliber of the troops, best encapsulated by a contemporary witness of the battle who noted simply that an arrow cannot slay a jazair. In the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Karnal, Muhammad Shah presenting himself to Nader at the Persian camp to offer his surrender, and reportedly abdicate the Mughal throne, removing his crown and handing it to Nader, who curiously set it aside for now, before inviting Muhammad Shah to his tent wherein, right from the onset, despite having just fought a battle, a friendly tone was struck between the two. Though there's no doubt as to who the master and vassal were in this relationship, since, according to Michael Axworthy in his book The Sword of Persia, from this point onwards, Nader was addressed as Shahanshah, meaning King of Kings, the traditional honorific of the Mughal emperors and that Nader made it clear from the start of his time in Delhi that he was emperor. Further evident by the instructions that were given and followed to have Nader's conquest, name, and new title voiced in all the mosques of the city, along with coins struck reiterating the same. Following the Battle of Karnal, Nader ordering Muhammad to disarm and disband the Mughal army, with the two then moving on to Delhi where on March 19th, Nader gave leave for Muhammad to enter the city, though escorted by some 5,000 Iranian troops, in preparation for his triumphant entrance the next day, wherein Delhi's streets were lined with his soldiers, clearing the path for the Shah's procession, headed by 100 elephants, 
on each of which several jazeirchi were mounted, and finally Nader himself on horseback. And upon reaching the city's royal fortress and palace complex, cannons thundering forth a salute to the conqueror. Shortly after this, coinciding with a rather controlled and systematic plundering of the city, focused on the homes and abodes of the Mughal nobility. That is, until a few days into the occupation, when the tense situation gave way to wild rumors that began spreading among the city's inhabitants, that Muhammad Shah had imprisoned or slain Nader, which sparked attacks on the Iranian troops, up to 3,000 of which were killed, triggering an explosion of violence and bitter street fighting within Delhi's winding and narrow lanes, and Nader ordering more of his forces into the city to extinguish the revolting mob and reassert control, the once controlled plundering of the city mutating into an unbridled rage of looting, destruction, and death. Returning to the words of Lawrence Lockhart, the Iranian soldiers proceeding to lay waste to much of the city by forcing their way into shops and houses in the doomed portions of the city, killing the occupants and laying violent hands on anything of value. The bazaars and the shops of the jewelers and merchants were all looted and large numbers of buildings were set on fire and destroyed, all within them perishing in the flames. No distinction was made between innocent and guilty, male and female, or old and young, resulting in an estimated 30,000 of Delhi's inhabitants massacred, and the accumulated wealth of nearly 350 years changing owners in a moment. Actually, 341 years to be exact. Time to Tamerlane's horrific sack of Delhi back in 1398. All in all, a colossal amount of wealth extracted. That among the pilfered treasures included the magnificent peacock throne, constructed of gold and adorned with precious stones, reportedly costing twice as much as the construction of the Taj Mahal. And the Darya Inur meaning Sea of Light, a 182-carat diamond that today forms a part of the Iranian crown jewels, and the Kuinur, Mountain of Light, a 106-carat diamond that is included among the crown jewels of the United Kingdom. In fact, so much wealth gained that this enabled Nader to suspend the taxation of his subjects in Iran for the next three years while still allowing for the continued expansion of his military forces. And in mid-May 1739, Nather proceeding to depart from Delhi, with an immense train of baggage following in his wake, thousands of mules, camels, and several hundred elephants required to haul the vast plunder. Though before leaving, settling some additional business in order to leverage his strategic advantage over the Mughals, thus strengthening both his position and that of his empire. By taking the Mughal chief physician, Alavi Khan, into his employ, who was known to be an exceptionally skilled and talented doctor, and is said to have been particularly effective at keeping Nather's degrading physical and mental distress in check, since for almost the next two years, as long as Alavi Khan was in his service, Nadar was reportedly much better from his afflictions, 
not cured, but experiencing far fewer sudden outbursts of explosive rage. Nader also arranging for his second eldest son, Morteza Mirza, to be married with a Mughal princess, intertwining his dynasty with that of the Mughal royal house. And lastly, Nader handing back the Mughal crown. In fact, by his own hand placing it on the head of Muhammad Shah, who was now effectively his vassal, in exchange for all the lands west of the Indus River that were officially added to Nader's empire. Only then would the victorious Iranian monarch finally departing from Delhi. However, would the immense and slow-moving baggage train only allowing for the column to move at a snail's pace as they made the long trek back to the city of Nadarabad, near the ruins of Kandahar, approximately 1,700 kilometers to the northwest, finally reaching there in early 1740, necessitating a grueling march, with the physical demands of the undertaking starting to catch up with the 52-year-old Nadar dealing with bandits attempting to siphon off the pilfered riches, and tremendous swings in weather, particularly the deliriously hot and humid summer season while traveling through northern India and Pakistan, wreaking havoc on Nader's health and inflaming his pre-existing ailments. In fact, so precarious a situation that while Nader was making his way back to Iran with his condition steadily worsening, Rumors began surfacing that he had died en route, with these erroneous reports eventually reaching his eldest son, Reza Kohli, based in Tehran, who had been tasked with ruling Iran while his father was abroad on campaign. Resulting in Reza Kohli, who was apparently becoming quite the mirror image of his father, insofar as being a skilled warrior, but also absolute in his rule, and reportedly brutally harsh at times, in late 1739, making a play to consolidate power and secure his succession to the Iranian throne, demanding the nearby Persian nobility and royal advisors to swear fealty to him as Nader's legitimate successor, and then, in an act of infamy, taking the additional step of ordering the imprisoned Safavids, Tamasp, his young son Abbas III, and all of their associated family members executed in the effort to eliminate any chance of a Safavid dynasty restoration to power, thereby further protecting his claim. Having taken these steps only to learn in early 1740 that not only had his father recovered from his illness thanks to the skill and efforts of the new chief physician, but that he had arrived alive and well at Nadarabad spending a brief amount of time there before leading his army northwards to the city of Herat, since Nader was readying for yet another campaign to the northeast of the empire in Central Asia, primarily aimed at the Khanat of Kiva, situated in the historical lands known as Khwarzam, a large oasis region in the Amudarya River Delta south of the Aral Sea, today part of Uzbekistan that, as mentioned back in the first part of the series, together with the Khanat of Bukhara, had long been a painful thorn in Iran's northeastern frontier, squabbling for territory and regularly conducting raids, plundering riches and slaves from the Persian domains in and around Khorasan. 
Nader's full focus now pulled there due to the actions of Ilbars Khan, Kiva's leader, who used Nader's absence from Iran while on his Mughal campaign, perhaps emboldened by the rumors of the Iranian Shah's death to make a series of savage raids deep into Persia. Aggressions that Nader was intent on thoroughly responding to, not just looking to seek vengeance, but in eyeing another opportunity for conquest. But first, needing to deal with his eldest son, who, due to his recent actions, had sparked for Nader a deeply seated suspicion of his ambitions, bordering on paranoia. And despite his apologies, his excuses of being misinformed of Nader's death, likely believing that Reza Koli remained intent on conspiring against him to usurp his throne which drove Nader to strip Reza Koli of his position as viceroy, replacing him with his second eldest son. Furthermore, commanding Reza Koli to meet him in northern Afghanistan, along the banks of the Amu Darya, the location that Nader was using as a staging point for the upcoming Central Asian campaign. A command that Reza Koli, after some hesitation, which only worked to inflame Nader's suspicions of him, eventually complied with, bringing his personal force of 12,000 horsemen to meet up with Nader in late June 1740, a force that Nader promptly incorporated into his army, leaving the prince without a command. And as a quick side note, as Nader was getting ready to lead his army north into Khwarezm, also learning that, far to the south of his growing empire, that the campaign to conquer Oman under the combined leadership of his admiral Latif Khan and the governor of Fars in southern Iran, Mohammad Taki Khan, that this endeavor wasn't going so well. In fact, turning into somewhat of a debacle. The two men, operating with a force of somewhere in the realm of 15,000 soldiers, having met with several severe setbacks, battle losses, and poor logistical support, that only multiplied the Persian casualty count, resulting in the two co-commanders blaming and squabbling with one another, which led to Latif's murder, Taki Khan having poisoned his rival, who then pled his case with Nader, blaming all their reversals of fortune on his murdered comrade, and apparently convincing Nader of the same, who shortly thereafter named Mohammad Taki Khan as the new admiral, with renewed orders to do whatever needed to level the city of Muscat to the ground, the capital city of Oman, resulting in Taki Khan taking a page from Nader's playbook, proceeding to drain the resources of the Iranian communities along its southern coast to provision another wave of invasion, as well as pressing their inhabitants into his army. And while Nader might have toyed with the notion of directly overseeing the subsequent attacks in that theater himself, he left it for now, since Central Asia was his destination. In the midsummer of 1740, the Iranian Shah kicking this campaign off by leading his enormous army, granted sources dispute the exact number, of an estimated 200,000 soldiers with all its associated firepower departing from their starting point in northern Afghanistan. That among the notables present, this included Nader's favorite general, 
Tamas Pkanja Lair, his disgraced son, Reza Koli Mirza, and a relatively new addition to the retinue, his nephew, Ali Koli Khan, the son of Nather's deceased younger brother, Ibrahim. Nather, as would have been expected, following along the northwest path of the Amudarya River towards the city of Kiva, approximately 800 kilometers away. However, curiously, and very early into the march, diverting from the expected route, leading his army north into the Khanat of Bukhara instead, the kingdom of Abulfaz Khan, who of course was already on high alert with such a formidable army on the edges of his domains. But with Nader using a similar tactic to what he had employed in the early stages of the Mughal campaign, sending communications to Abulfaz to put his fears at ease, stating that he had no designs on his domains other than making for an easier march en route to Kiva. However, again, like seen in the early stages of the Mughal campaign, the actions and intent of Nader soon becoming disturbingly apparent, conflicting with his reassuring words. As Nader entered the city of Karshi in August, taking possession of it, before quickly sending large detachments of his army 160 kilometers onwards to the city of Bukhara itself, where Abulfaz initially attempted to put up a resistance, but was heavily defeated, forcing him to retreat back to his capital. Because, you see, while the Iranian army, as mentioned numerous times throughout the series, had rapidly evolved to become a gunpowder behemoth, with Nather changing the very face of warfare in the region, the respective militaries of the Khanats of Bukhara and Kiva remained rooted in the past, possessing few musketmen infantry and practically no artillery, relying almost solely on cavalry armed with lances, swords, and bows, which helps to explain how the Persian army was able to sweep any attempts of resistance aside so easily resulting in Abulfaz not being able to do much more than watch with dismay, as the Persian forces continued building around Bukhara. Tens of thousands of Iranian troops, hundreds of artillery pointing the way of his city, soon followed by Nader's arrival. Presenting not much of an option other than capitulation, in September 1740, Abulfaz bowing to Nader, and surrendering his kingdom, but also because Nader had sweetened the deal in allowing Abulfaz to remain as the ruler of the Khanat of Bukhara, as Nader's vassal, thereby adding the entire region of Transoxiana, modern southeastern Uzbekistan, including the city of Samarkand, into Nader's sphere of influence. And, as per usual, Nather incorporating 20,000 horsemen from the region into his unstoppable army, that in the month following resumed their approach towards the Khanat of Kiva to the northwest of Bukhara, where its leader, Ilbars Khan, did not intend to give up so easily, though in offering up a resistance that was doomed to failure, given the aforementioned makeup of his military that was unable to stand up to what the Iranians were fielding. This becoming apparent very early into the invasion, in October 1740 at the Battle of Pitnak, 
the southern limits of the Khanate of Kiva, which sadly historical sources don't provide much detail on, other than a high-level overview. Wherein, understanding that the Persian army was approaching, but on the western side of the Amudaria River, Ilbars managed to assemble a force of 30,000 horsemen on its eastern bank that raced to where Nather was intending to cross. However, as we have most certainly come to expect with this Iranian monarch, so well attuned to all aspects of military doctrine, especially in tactical foresight, having anticipated and prepared for this possibility. Much earlier, in fact, prior to the conquest of Bukhara, having placed a small body of troops in the low thousands on the eastern side of the river that were used to procure boats from the communities they came across, as well as build some of their own, that were then brought downstream and used to ferry the bulk of his army across the waterway that had been forced marched to the crossing point at a frenzied pace. With Ilbars and his 30,000 cavalry arriving on the scene to find the Persians in the midst of transporting themselves across the river. But with Nader and the vast majority of his army already across the Amudaria, the battle ensuing shortly thereafter, but with Nader readily crushing Ilbar's forces. In an impressive show of defiance, Ilbar's managing to recover from this initial disaster and resort to a guerrilla style of resistance over the next weeks. That did little other than delay the inevitable towards early December when Nader managed to finally corner Ilbars at a fortress near the city of Kiva. That became the target of a frightening show of Iranian artillery firepower. A merciless bombardment lasting three days that obliterated the fort's outer defenses, persuading Ilbars troops to surrender and hand over their leader to Nader who promptly executed Ilbars by the way of strangulation. This event, marking the completion of the conquest of the Khanate of Kiva, and bringing Nader's Central Asian campaign to an end. And as a quick aside, of note is that during the course of this campaign, Nader's forces are said to have come across and collected nearly 12,000 Iranians, predominantly originating from Khorasan that had been captured by Uzbek raiders and sold into slavery in the Khanats, which Nader then set free, supplying them with horses, animals, provisions, money, and returning them to their homes, before returning to Khorasan himself, landing at the city of Mashhad on January 17, 1741, the capital of his now enormous Iranian empire, to the jubilation of its inhabitants and lavish celebrations, welcoming home their unstoppable Shah. That, as a result of his more recent conquests, at the expense of the Mughal Empire, the Khanats of Bukhara and Kiva, had built a Persian empire that now reflected in size and scale the echoes of a mighty past, in the likeness of the Achaemenids and Sasanians of antiquity. With Nader himself, an early modern revival of their most prolific monarchs, a king of kings. Perhaps better yet, his accomplishments thus far granting him a well-earned place among and as a worthy successor to the greatest of Asiatic military conquerors. Most certainly a fitting tribute, 
since, in the fashion of those that came before him, such as Genghis Khan and Emir Timur, he had abruptly changed the fortunes of his nation, salvaging it from being ripped apart before recapturing all its lost territories, and then moving into an aggressive policy of expansion. Having remade the Iranian Empire into a military juggernaut, this in just over a decade since the casting down of the Hotak dynasty from their occupation in 1729, which, considering the short time frame, is a mind-blowing achievement. The 53-year-old Nader Shah in January 1741, at the pinnacle of his career, the apex of his power, seemingly unstoppable, and who only remained at his capital of Mashhad for two months before setting out on the warpath once again, determined to go after more. Heading westwards, to punish the Lesgians of Dagestan for all the trouble they were causing in the northwestern corner of his empire, including the death of his younger brother Ibrahim. And from where a renewal of conflict with the Ottomans was more and more inching towards the inevitable, since they had still not complied with his threatening demands to have Jafari Islam raised in importance and positioned alongside the four primary Sunni schools. That is mentioned earlier on in this episode was a vital element continually hanging over Nader's head in terms of legitimizing his claim to kingship and for that of his dynasty. Nader, of course, intending to do what he did best in pursuit of these goals, using military force to achieve his wants and desires, marching out from Mashhad in March 1741. However, unable to foresee, that while in the midst of leading his far-reaching column of troops across the width of northern Iran, 1,500 kilometers west towards Dagestan, at one point, two months into their march, as he guided his troops through a thickly wooded forest road, that from behind the foliage, a musket barrel would soon be pointing his way, aiming to put an end to the seemingly unstoppable Iranian Shah. In the next episode, the finale of our series on Nader Shah will follow along as Nader, while en route to Dagestan by mere inches, manages to survive this assassination attempt, recovering physically, but that ultimately pushes his precarious state of mind into a destructive tailspin of instability, clouding his judgment and depriving him of the military brilliance that had taken him so far in life, while subjecting his troops and officers to appalling conditions and demands, a notion that becomes increasingly evident in his subsequent campaign against the Lesgians. At the same time, spurring for Nader, more random streaks of abject cruelty, not just leveled upon his enemies, but also heaped onto his subjects including one notably egregious act inflicted on his eldest son, before reigniting war with the Ottomans in response to their refusal to accept the Jafari denomination as the fifth main school of Islamic law. However, with Nader presiding over a lackluster invasion that does little to change the map 
or the minds of the Ottomans on their religious stance. All this incessant warring and the constant push to expand his army yielding few benefits and mainly resulting in Nader rapidly burning through his immense wealth to once again revert to the practice of heavily extorting his people to feed his unsustainable military machine, leading to the economic ruin of his empire and an increasingly oppressive reign, triggering a series of internal rebellions throughout that he unflinchingly and ruthlessly goes about stamping out, forgiving nothing, accepting nothing less than complete obedience to all his commands, and when, combined with his mounting paranoia, making for an exceedingly dangerous state of affairs, in particular for those in his immediate orbit, including numerous instances of unwarranted executions amongst the officers of his army, which would lead to his ultimate demise, and from where we'll touch upon the events that followed thereafter and the legacy left in the wake of his violent reign. This and more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And lastly, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure, and where you can also reach out to me with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from Audionautics.com